everyone. We just want to let you know Literally Dead does contain explicit language and some of the topics we talk about can be disturbing and triggering. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to episode two of Literally Dead. This week's theme is nature, and let me tell you guys, I'm out of my nature at the moment because I am sitting in our attic with boxes for my desk. Just so you guys get better (laughs) fucking sound quality, you're welcome. Pictures will be on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Oh my god, we're we're humble beginnings right now. That's where we're at. Um, we put yeah. the indie and independent. <laughs> Just saying. Okay, so this week we are doing nature, like Amanda said, um, and this <laughs> this kind of officially starts off where we don't know shit about what the other person's gonna say. Um, yes, I'm so, so excited. Yeah, I'm excited too all right so i'm gonna roll the dice again okay um do you want to be one through three or four through six four through six it was three okay i'm excited so i want to pre preface preface something whatever i want to preface my segment with so i know what i said last week i know i said oh i want to do more dark tourism emphasis on the tourism but (laughs) this this week really ends up just being more towards the darker side of the spectrum um the only real tourism you're gonna get from this portion is kind of like through a media medium which it sounds kind of funky but to go with nature and i know amanda was expecting this for one of the fucking episodes but she yes. didn't know how soon it was coming it is the body farm what already yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, how how much do you know about the body farm, Amanda? Not a lot. I feel like we've mm-hmm. talked about this. But I can't remember any specific details. So, I'm excited to relearn everything you're about to throw at me. <laughs> Good. Bring it on. Because I'm ready. I'm going to throw a lot. I actually have notes this week. Um, so, I, again, I want to preface this with, I'm breaking this down. Kind, not... I'm not breaking it down. I'm giving you the bare essentials of what the body farm is, how many places there are, why it was founded, what happens there, and kind of what it's influenced. So there's a lot of things that the body farm has influenced and a lot of different cases that the creator, Dr. William Bass, he's he's worked on a lot of famous cases, but I guess I need to reel back and actually explain what's going on. So the body farm is, the technical term for it isn't actually body farm, and there's kind of like several different tales to why it's called the body farm. Okay. Um, a lot of people point to uh, a writer, Patricia Cornwell, who uses the body farm. She's also, uh, she did the foreword for one of uh, Bass's books. She's been to all of these different, like, forensic and crime um, conventions and this, that, and the other thing. And she wrote a book based on the work that was done on the body farm. And a lot of her fiction novels deal with the body farm and having that help out with the crimes that are solved within the novels. So is this um, what you bought that I wasn't allowed to see? So, no, I didn't buy one of her novels. I bought William Bass's original Bass's, Bass's original, like, memoir book called Death's Acre. Um, so that's okay. one of the readings for this week. I also got a subscription to Scribd. That's not a uh, an ad or anything. <laughs> I just bought a subscription to Scribd because I was like, oh, this is going to be so fucking helpful. I'm going to read so much. I didn't read all that much, but I read enough. I, I didn't read enough. I want to read so much more. But two <laughs> weeks goes by so much faster than you think it does. It's I didn't. fine. At least you researched. <laughs> It's true. At least I researched. Um, but yeah, so I also read Beyond the Body Farm, which is another book by Bass. And in that, he also describes like how the body farm came to be um, and the set and the other thing, especially in the forward. So again, reeling back just a little bit. So the body farm is a patch of land 
outside of the unit or well sort of attached to the university of tennessee um and its te technical term is anthropological research facility um it was founded in 1987 by dr william bass who uh he's trained under so many different like incredible scientists like he was one of those people that's like i'm going to school for counseling and then one of the scientists was like hey or like one of his teachers was like hey you should come along with me while i go identify this body and it, it changed his life like he he was like you know what I, fuck counseling i wanted like identify dead bodies for a living <laughs> which honestly kind of a mood but um <laughs> actually a mood we yeah, all like dead bodies um, once in a while we all go through a phase yeah, yeah. I think we all go through it. Sometimes it's not a phase. Sometimes it's a good phase. And in that very small slimmer, it is not a good phase. And you should pay attention. No. <laughs> <laughs> and then sometimes it becomes your career. Yeah, that's true. You never know. I don't know where I'm going from here, but we'll see. <laughs> it's fine. We'll find our way there. Basically, it's a facility that is fenced in. It is out in nature this is why it relates to nature it is a it's like an acre of land that bodies that have been donated like cadavers actual people who donated their bodies for the specific purpose they get put out into like into the grass into like, like they're buried in shallow graves they're put in like maybe a car that's put in the lot and like locked in the trunk all to like measure how fast their body will decompose under different circumstances it's all coming back to me now yeah I, yeah yep i can picture it i've seen video of it and yeah this place is crazy it's some, it's, it's some so gnarly cool though it is so cool. It's some gnarly stuff. Like, again, going back to Patricia uh, Cornwell with her forward, like, she's like, oh, yeah, no. They show us stuff at this forensic anthropology conventions all the time, and sometimes you have to eat breakfast while watching these slideshows, and usually I'm fine. But what he showed me, no. Because <laughs> a lot of what you, like, a lot of what's going on is you are seeing and studying the natural breakdown of the body itself. And a lot of, like, what is going on is, okay, how soon do the gases bubble up? How soon do, like, maggots come in? How soon are we getting to, the like, the bone? How soon are they either going to be dried out or are they going to be stripped completely of their flesh? And so the Tennessee one, this it was in the University of Tennessee. This was, like, the original body farm. From there, there have sprouted six others in the United States because the climate of Tennessee isn't the climate of Colorado, isn't the climate of Illinois, isn't the right. climate of West Carolina yeah. um, or Texas. So the uh, West the Carolina, I'm sorry. West Carolina. <laughs> I am tired. I worked an eight-hour day. You are getting me <laughs> at my best right now, y'all. Okay. <laughs> But so the six others in the United States is Western Carolina University. That's where I got West Carolina because I was, you know, I was looking oh, at my notes. Okay. I was looking there. at my notes. Yeah, there. I thought you, thank you just like invented you. the 51st state. And I'm like, <laughs> all right. We don't need another Carolina. We'll roll We don't it. need we really another don't need Carolina. Carolina. We already have two. That's enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, yeah, we have Western Carolina University, Texas State University, which also, fun fact, Texas State University is the largest one. It has 26 acres. There's also a lot of stuff with that one where they had one place, but there were protests about it. And I'll get into that a little bit more later. They had to move it and it's like all up in the air. And then they finally got like this ranch where they had 26 acres and they're only using a little bit of it right now. Um and they were worried about, like, the vultures, actually. Um, and that was That's one fair. of the things that, like, people would complain about is, like, they're like, oh, the vultures are going to be around because of these dead bodies. So that's why they moved it further away. And also, they decided, you know what, we're going to kind of keep this because it's another, like, animal of prey that's going to be eating a body in the wild. Like, yeah. if you dump a body in the side of the road in texas that's gonna happen vultures are gonna find it texas state university is the third one after western carolina and tennessee um, sam houston state university southern illinois university and colorado mesa university and then so there's seven in the u.s but there's eight in the world one is in australia of course it's in australia, australia because why the <laughs> fuck not Listen, I've been so I one of my favorite podcasts is uh I'm gonna say it wrong. It's Case File True Crime. 
Okay. It was a true crime case file. I can't even fucking remember. Either way, they cover a lot of, like, Australian, like, murders. There's a lot of shit oh, yeah. that goes down in Australia. You think the wildlife's going to get you? I don't, no, no. No, <laughs> no honey. The it's crazy not going to get you. Because they're all <laughs> descendant from criminals. I've been no. to Australia, and I love it, so. I mean, I'm not Amanda. mad about it. <laughs> I'm not mad about it at all. But, yeah, you, you've told me about that podcast. It's on my queue. It's good. It's good. Um, I I listen to it a lot. Back on track because we keep getting sidetracked. But so the one the one in Australia didn't like I if I done a little more digging, I probably could have found the location of it. But it's just outside of Sydney. Um, And the the official name for it is the Australian facility for Tephonic Tephonomic. I know experimental research. Yeah, the one of the people that runs that one is Sherry Forbes. So they're also, and that one is also kind of special because so a lot of the a lot of the body farms use pigs first because again, like many oh, people yeah, probably already know, sense. pigs are very similar to humans. They don't have a layer of fur. Um, the internal organ structure is very very similar. Um, the skin might be a little thicker, but it's very similar to ours. In a lot of different cases, like ballistics testing and things like that, they they use pigs' bodies in in replacement. So before they get bodies donated to them, they start out with pigs. But with the Australian one, they actually have one where they have several bodies in it, but they have a separate one for animal bodies. So oh, there's cool. two separate body farms. But again, so like the body farm is just kind of like a very morbid term for it. But it's fascinating because like the people who work with this, like some of them are kind of chagrined by the name. But Dr. Bass is like, like he's really kind of into it. And Patricia <laughs> Cornwell was kind of like, yeah, no, uh, it was kind of named the body farm before I even made my book, The Body Farm. <laughs> So it's really up in the air. Who coined the term and when did it start becoming like it was kind of the body farm from the beginning. But, you know, I guess it's like the name gives it a justice to it. Like, obviously, like forensic anthropology research and shit like that is. Yeah. okay. so they're doing like research about forensics, but it doesn't get to the meat of it like a body farm does. There's just bodies out there. (laughs) It's like the perfect name for it, it yeah really it really is it really is and I also there's a part of me that's like it kind of it's it's hard because it kind of sensationalizes it a little bit um and this is kind of playing yeah. into the yeah. dark tourism aspect because it's not it's not a physical tourism it's not available to the public you can only get in and if you're like a student who's working with it or like a researcher or a potential like media trying to cover it things like that and they actually have on different <laughs> i saw this at least on the tennessee website they have it in big bold letters there are no tours of the body far <laughs> <laughs> leading me to wonder how many people asked but <laughs> so probably probably i would probably be one of those people that would ask because yeah. shit is cool, and I'd love to see that someday. Kinda? Yeah. It's, Maybe. Uh... We'll see. If I ever got the opportunity, yeah, for sure. I would totally <laughs> go see it, because I'm morbid like that. It's, it's weird. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's weird. It's weird, because I'm a... I don't know. I would want to see it, but I don't know if I would jump at the chance. I think I would hesitate. Because it's like, I love this. I love researching the morbid. I love doing this. I've taken traumatic images twice. Um, this is this is my field of study. So I see a lot of images of death. I see a lot of images of gore, um, of like morgue photos, this, that, and the other thing. There will be an episode, and I know I'm kind of spoiling this, but you guys don't know when it's going to happen. So, That's but I will true. be talking we about don't. like, because <laughs> like, the thing is, dark tourism doesn't actually stop at the physical. The internet has opened up so many websites, so many things yeah. like snuff films are easily shared. Um, places like Celebrity Morgue. Um, Did you say snuff like film? Huh? Did you say snuff film? Yeah. Do you know what that is? I don't know what that is. Can you uh, enlighten me? Because I have no idea what that means. Oh God, you sweet summer child! <laughs> I've I'm never spring, actually, but okay. <laughs> I've never actually watched them myself because that is something that I am kind of physically terrified of. I don't like seeing 
gore or death as it happens. I have a little bit of an issue watching horror films even, um, especially if it's like real life stuff. Like I can't, I can't watch it. I will think about it for the next three weeks, if not more. And if I remember it after that, I will be thinking about it for another three weeks. Um, I'm just a very paranoid person. Um, that's why I like looking at the after images and studying it from there. Is it but, like someone um, dying? Yeah. So snuff films are like purposefully filmed videos of people dying of like killing people um sometimes they go into like the accident range where it'll be like a compilation of like car accidents that you and people just dying um you should see my face right now because i am disturbed on so many levels right now yeah so we're actually and i'm 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 looking at google in the dictionary it is a pornographic movie of an actual murder. A snuff film is specifically to kind of get off on. Oh, and that's like fucking serial killer level shit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm cringing in my skin right now. I just want you to know. Oh, <laughs> just the thought of watching that. Just, ooh. Ooh, that's yeah, gross. if we're going, so I'm I'm looking at the Wikipedia page now, and the first, like, the, the, the basic sum up is a snuff film is a genre that purports to show scenes of actual homicide. The, pro- the promotion of these films depends on sensational claims, which are generally impossible to prove, and there are sophisticated techniques for simulating the appropriate special effects. So half of these movies really aren't true. The other half of them, you don't fucking know. It's like you don't those know people... Who fucking commit crimes on Facebook Live? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. that take that's like a whole other kind of person. But would that also say like horror movies with fictionalized <laughs> murders? Would those be counting as snuff films? Um. So horror? No. So it's. The, I feel like the thing that makes a snuff film a snuff film is specifically the fact that you don't know that it happened. Like, is this real? Am I watching somebody die? Like, am I watching the physical proof that somebody fucking died? Whereas a horror film, you can go into this. And even if it says based on a true story beforehand, they don't have the actual film. Yeah, and you know that the person on the screen isn't actually dead because they're an actor. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I think, how how far are we in? Oh, God. Okay. So I have, like, not even ten minutes left. Hey, go for it. So I'll... I'll, I'll try and wrap this up soon. I kind of said a lot of what I wanted to say anyway. The, and the body farm, like I said at the very beginning, has influenced a lot of media. This, But this also, like, the body farm has made so many strides to help forensic investigation. Before the body farm, there was really no way to tell, like, hey, how many days ago did this body get dumped here? And now they have a setup, like, system of how many, like, degree days i think it is the fun thing about the body farm is that there's so many bodies that are in there at the moment that they can do all these sorts of scenarios like i said like the the trunk of a car a shallow grave a deeper grave there's one where um there's several graves or several bodies dumped together in a deep grave to represent the mass grave kind of scenario yeah um and seeing if like the bodies dumped together like affect the decomposition and things like that um i just i just think it's so cool <laughs> because it's like they are doing very active work and a lot of like a lot of entomology stuff with like the maggots and like what bugs are feeding off of them what beetles are here like a lot of the stuff that came specifically in regards to bodies that were dumped came out of the body farm like there were several people like specifically studying this and now we know like oh hey this one's going to show up this one's going to show up this is how fast it's going to help the body decompose and whatnot and it's just it's it's so cool that all of this is pulled out and so let me just again this is from wikipedia and i could probably gather a lot more sources and there's probably so many more things that have like used the body farm in their culture but or not culture in their media Patricia Cornwell's book, The Body Farm, as well as several other of her books. And then Dr. Bass actually wrote a lot of fictional murder mystery novels, which is the funniest thing. Yeah, it's the funniest thing to me. Like, this man is so, so interested in what he does. He does, like, he does all this. 
<laughs> and he wrote them with another guy, John Jefferson, uh, and they did it under the pill or the the pseudonym Jefferson Bass, combining both of their names together. Wow, that is um, real original. <laughs> <laughs> so there's also uh, a British television series called Waking the Dead, where one of the the characters has her own body farm, and then there's a spinoff series that's actually called The Body Farm. <laughs> um, <laughs> naturally and then so there was and several several u.s shows obviously did like reference the body farm as well rizzoli and isles bones absolutely obviously that did not surprise me to see me on the or see on the list yeah. uh csi crime scene investigation um x files okay i've never watched x files yeah oh, x files is so good amanda um i'm actually gonna watch it again that doesn't need to be in the podcast. You can keep it in the podcast. I love X-Files. <laughs> Not an ad. Just me loving what I love. So then there's more novels that have been based with it, like Whispers of the Dead by Simon Beckett. There's stuff. There's actually an episode of the documentary series Stephen Fry in America where he visits the univer- like the, the Tennessee one. And I, you know what? I'm actually going to go ahead and watch that. Um, you should. And then Law and Order SVU. I was just going to say that. I feel like in an episode they have a body farm in New York City that they use. Yeah. In the show. I I swear to God, I've seen an episode where a body was dumped, but it wasn't one of theirs. I've seen every episode of SVU. Oh, yeah, yeah. Prior to like. That's specifically what the episode is. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's a good one. That's a good episode. There's also an anime. I watched half of the first season of this anime, but it was specifically in the second one. Uh, Durarara times two. One of the characters mentions that his father researches the body farm um, and whatnot. And then how I heard of the body farm is through this last one. Uh, Sally Mann is a photographer, and she did a book in 2003 called What Remains. And it is, it's full of photography. Um, it's on the subject of death all the decomposing bodies and things like that. And several of the photos are um, from the body farm. And that's how I heard about it. Because like I mentioned before, I took traumatic images several times. And that kind of spurred, like, I want to look into this more. I may actually purchase that book because I, I, I want it on my shelf. I want to purchase so many books. I have um, Dr. Bass's now. And I have another Caitlin Doty book. And I'm going to be talking about Caitlin Doty very heavily in the coming weeks most likely i love her i'm a very big fan of her um also this is actually going to be a plug again not being paid to say this but if you wanted to donate your body to science and you don't want it to go to a place like body worlds or just like to a regular kind of like um medical school you can donate your body to the body farm um anyone in the body farms and there's like a specific area for each of them like so many miles out that they will come and pick up your corpse for free after you pass away to bring it back and then put it into a different scenario or like whatnot and the body farm is kind of just one step here um it's kind of emphasized that you know you're giving this so that we can learn how the body decomposes, but afterwards we're going to preserve your skeleton. We're going to use it. We're going to use it to study. So that's kind of really what you're donating your body to is you're donating it for the pearly whites underneath, <laughs> not the skin on top. <laughs> Let the it skin be known. Is just a stepping stone. Let it be known that I would like my body donated to the body farm in Australia so that I can go <laughs> and live for eternity in the first country I ever visited. Just letting that be known now. Sydney is such a beautiful city. I'd love to be there for the rest of eternity. And at least have my body we'd, there for the rest of eternity. We'd have to see how much it costs to ship your body. <laughs> you know what? Doesn't Honestly, matter. Because that'd left be dead. With... <laughs> this has left me with so many interesting... Cause it's also because I've been listening and watching and reading so much Caitlin Doughty. But this has gotten me thinking about like what I want to do with my body after death. And the body farm is definitely, definitely a high one on the list, but there's a lot of, like, anxieties that I have with that as well. Because I know how how much of a sentimental person, a sentimental person I am, but, yeah. yeah. So, that's that's also another story for another time, because I want to get into that on a different episode. Yeah. Um, Fair enough. But that's kind of concluded. So, definitely look into it more if you think that you're interested in the body farm. Sometimes real life is so exciting. Sometimes it in, is. In a morbid way. In a morbid way. But, yeah. All right. So, body farm, 
closed. Case closed. Very nice. What do you got for me, Amanda? Sheila, I'm so excited. So, today, we are going to be discussing another Venetian in Cannabula. If you don't know what that means, go to episode one and then rejoin us. Because <laughs> I really don't want to explain it again. So, <laughs> tell them the truth. So, this book we're discussing today is called The Naturalist, I Don't Speak Latin, Historia, or also known mm-hmm. as The Natural History. So, this book was printed in 1469 and was written by Pliny the Elder. I keep saying Pliny. It might be pronounced otherwise, but again, I don't speak Latin. Maybe someday I'll mm-hmm. speak Latin, but today is not that day. Um, so, this book is, quote... The largest single work to have survived the Roman Empire to the modern day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's considered to be the first encyclopedia. However, that's really disputed since it doesn't follow the format of a modern encyclopedia. But it's basically like a reference book. I had, there's so much, so many resources out there about this book. And discussing whether or not it's an encyclopedia, it's kind of mind-boggling just the complexity of this book, just with that genre. Mm -hmm. So I did read a doctoral thesis. Well, I read the beginning of a doctoral thesis, because no one got time for that. It was about the status of an encyclopedia. And the author says, quote, his catalog of dry facts studded with fantastic stories build a monumental account of the nature of things always threatening to flatten the reader under the weight of its knowledge. For this and more complex reasons, it is usually called an encyclopedia. And then he goes for another hundred pages about why it should be encyclopedia, but why it's not based on modern readership. And I'm not going to go into that because that's not interesting. At least to me, it's not interesting. (laughs) I will provide a link if you'd like to read this thesis because it was pretty cool. The book, according to Pliny, the author has Mm 20,000 topics contained in 36 books, and it's printed in 10 volumes. Wait, wait, so you're talking about a series of books right now, yeah? Yeah, so 20,000 topics, 36 books. So, like, the Hypnotomachia was two books, but it was one book. So so how many, so are all of these, all of these, like, you say it's it's one of the longest existing, like, pieces, but longest lasting, I guess. Are all of the books intact? Holy shit. Yeah, for the most part, yeah. We'll get into when, when that. Was, sorry, okay, so I'm going to have you repeat me, yeah. or repeat for me. Yes. When was it When was it originally published? It was printed in 1469. I'm about to <sighs> blow your mind about when it was written. Printed oh and written, God. two very <laughs> different things. All right, so we're talking that it survived the Roman Empire, so it's fucking old. So 20,000 topics contained in 36 books. 36 books mm-hmm. is like 36 sections. Um, and it's print it is in 10 volumes. So there's 10 individual books, like physical books. It's so difficult to explain. So with 20,000 topics to discuss, um, it's important to note that they are not limited to today's definition of natural history. That's why I kind of picked it for nature, because we're talking about natural history and the nature of things. The definition of natural history for this book comes from Pliny himself, who writes in the in book one that it's considered the natural world of life. The natural naturalist Historia is the only complete work of Pliny to survive and the last published. Are you ready to hear when it was written? No, but you're going to tell me anyway. <laughs> I am going to tell you anyway. So he began <laughs> writing the book and completed the first 10 books were written in 77 CE. The fuck? The year 77. It's like unreal. The fuck? He spent the next two years revising the first 10, and he wrote the last 27 books, whose revisions were never completed by his death in, ni- in 1979. That's not correct. In 79 CE. First, we're going to talk about Pliny. So Pliny the Elder's Latin name is Gaius Plinius Secundus, and he was born in the year 23 mm-hmm. in what is today Italy. He saw the reign of a number of emperors, and I'm only going to name like the most well-known that you've known from history class, mm-hmm. Tiberius, okay. Caligula. So fun note about Caligula, um, Pliny did not think that his behavior was remarkable enough to write about him. This is the emperor that declared war on Poseidon and stabbed the ocean. Just remember that. Okay. He didn't think it was remarkable enough to write about him. So he also uh, saw the reign of Claudius, Nero, 
Vespasian and Titus. So Pliny was from a wealthy family. He studied in Rome and joined the military at age 23. Um, and he mm. was sent to fight in Germany, where he met who would become Emperor Vespasian. And he's the first emperor of the Flavian dynasty. Um, after his service, he possibly went into law, or he at least for sure became a public servant. Um, he did somewhat retire during the reign of Nero, but that was just because he didn't want to come under scrutiny with his writings. Mm -hmm. um, in 69, Emperor Vespasian ascended the throne, which nice. pulled Pliny back into the public sector. And mm -hmm. he was given the title slash position, um, I don't know if it's one or the other, of procurator. Procurator? I'm saying those aren't that thing wrong. <laughs> Procreator? Let's go with that one, of Spain, Gaul, and Belgium. Mm -hmm. um, and on top of his military and government positions, he was also a writer and a scholar. Other than the natural history, Pliny also wrote a number of other works, of which only segments exist today. And that includes writing on grammar, a biography on this guy called Pomponius Secundus, who was a poet mm -hmm. and a statesman under Tiberius Caligula and Claudius. He also wrote A History of Rome, Roman Campaigns in Germany, a whole writing on the hurling of the lance, which is mm -hmm. about lance throwing and, like, how you do it. I, I don't even know. His last thing that he did was that he wrote advice on women's cosmetics. And I know that sounds like, oh, of course, this guy is, like, telling women how to wear makeup, but it's not that at all. It's actually about, like, what materials would be used best for cosmetics and medicine. Just a fun fact about Pliny, he was known to be very eccentric, and he was a workaholic who hated wasting time. Um, he <laughs> has a nephew who we're going to talk about later, but he would write about his uncle saying that he was actually carried in a chair so that he could write what he saw around him and dictate to servants. I guess servants, not slaves, because slaves wouldn't be able to read or write, but servants would. Don't blast me on that. It's fine. <laughs> so he had remarked to his nephew at one point, like, why are you wasting your time walking? He didn't, so he could observe what was around him. So obviously with that attitude, he never married or had children, but he did adopt his nephew, who was known as Pliny the Younger, um, mm -hmm. so that the younger would be his heir when he died. And one of the most interesting things about Pliny, in my opinion, is his death. Um, how did he die? I know. I told you that I was very excited about how he died. And it's <laughs> because it centered around a very famous historical event. I'm going to give you a date. August 24th, 79. Do you know what that date is in world history? Don't Google it. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, God, I don't know. Amanda. 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 Okay, I'm going to continue. I'm a historian, but I'm more of a modern historian. It's fun. I love ancient <laughs> history. It? it is the explosion of Vesuvius. Wow. Yeah, so um, there's kind of three theories of how he died. So mm -hmm. the first story is that he was deployed as a naval commander in the Roman Navy, and he was stationed in the Bay of Naples, and he saw smoke mm -hmm. rising from Mount Vesuvius, and in his academic spirit... He wanted to study it up close. So he set sail for shore, climbed Mount Vesuvius, and died from the fumes. So It's like I can't even say anything because I'm from Kansas. And when there's a tornado, you stand on your porch. <laughs> so literally taking a boat and going to the fucking volcano ain't too far off there. Good on you. That's true. Good on you, man. So um, it's actually <laughs> considered very unlikely by scholars because he... We theorize it was too large to have walked the whole way, because mm -hmm. he never walked. Um, he also had throat issues, which made breathing breathing difficult. Um, or the more obvious reason why this is unlikely is because his nephew, the younger, um, in a series of letters described the day of his death of his uncle, and it's the exact opposite of these accounts. <laughs> so I have no idea where this story came from, but it was in a lot of the sources I read that this is how he died. It was by academic spirit. <laughs> the second story is kind of the most agreed upon in um, academia, because um, they cooperate with the letters of Pliny the Younger. And it starts with the same beginning as the first story, that he is a naval commander in the Bay of Naples, 
but he led his fleet to Herculaneum, where he launched a rescue mission for his friend Pomponius, who is a different Pomponius than the one he wrote the bio about. Um, but mm-hmm. due to wind conditions, he wasn't able to leave the city, so he stayed with the family, and they basically partied and feasted all night long, kind of distract themselves <laughs> from all the mayhem that was happening. Um, because at that point, it was safer to stay inside than outside. And the next day, as the family was uh, evacuating, they left Pliny behind, and some say it's because he wasn't able to move even with help, but some say he had already died from fumes. He did die in Herculaneum, according to Pliny the Younger, and other sources, because they came back about ten days later and um, got his body and brought it back Mm. from Herculaneum. Third and last story is that some scholars state that due to his health, he was nowhere even near Vesuvius, and he just died of a heart attack in the same year. This theory isn't fun, and I don't like it, so. (laughs) (laughs) It ain't creative enough for Amanda. It literally says that in my notes. This theory isn't (laughs) fun, and I don't like it. (laughs) So we gonna move on. I love you. I love you. Let's just establish that. (laughs) So jot that down. Okay. It's done. So now we're going to talk about the actual book. We're going to talk about the manuscripts first, and then we're going to talk about the printing. So it's encyclopedic Mm -hmm. in terms of content, but not organized as one. It's organized using um, what's called Aristotle's division of nature. I don't know what that means. I didn't want to go down a rabbit hole. So... (laughs) We're leaving it there. There's so many avenues that we can take on this one. And unfortunately, our podcast is not set up yet to uh, do several episodes on one topic. Yes. Maybe someday, if we ever get a Patreon, rabbit holes will be um, a fun little Patreon-only membership thing. Yeah, let's go with that. So book one is a summary Quote, a summary of the remaining 36 books, listing the authors and sometimes titles of the book from which Pliny derived his materials. Mm -hmm. It's very important to know, which is why this book is so cool, that most of the sources that Pliny used are now lost. Really? Yes. So, Pliny also states in the first book that he used 100 sources, which is completely inaccurate. (laughs) Did he have more or less? More. Do you want to take a guess at how many sources he had? He's like the fucking modern historian, where it's like, we all know we had more sources, but are we going to cite them all? No. No, he cited them all. Oh, he did? Yeah, he just like, oh yeah, I used 100 sources. But the doctoral thesis that I read and others from like the 1920s actually went through and counted the amount of sources. Jesus Christ. And so he used... over. What do you think? Over 500 sources? Okay, you're close. You're close. He used... 523. No. He actually used 473 sources. Jesus Christ, man. 140... What are you doing? I know, right? 146 of those were Roman authors, and 327 (laughs) of them were um, Greek. Aristotle is actually the most used source. And he dedicates the book to Emperor Titus, the son of his friend, Emperor Vespasian. If I'm saying that name wrong, come at me. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) This is where we start getting into some, a little bit of shady details about this book. And you're going to see why it's shady later on. Book two is dedicated to cosmology and astronomy. So it's problematic because Pliny did a lot of translations from those 327 Greek authors. So in this section, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of badly translated astronomy passages, and the math and technical passages were so badly translated that they've been distorted. Yes. Books three through six are on geography, and this includes information on major cities, tribes, and cultures that no longer exist. Books seven through eleven. This part is really cool. I went down a little bit of rabbit hole here. (laughs) So seven through eleven are on zoology. And that begins with humans, then mammals, and then aquatic animals, birds, and insects. Most of this Mm -hmm. information is from Aristotle, but Pliny did add some of his own observations, especially from his travels in Germany. This section is also really problematic. 
he contributes to the section mythological animals based on folklore and mythology. Mm-hmm. So some of the creatures he discusses were originally written by Herodotus, which was considered the first Greek, well, the first historian. He was Greek. And so some of the ones that he discussed were the Ceno... Oh, God. Cenocephali? We're going to go with that. Mm-hmm. Which were written about by Herodotus. And they're dog-headed people. Kind of like Anubis okay. from Egypt. Hands had the face of the jackal, but human body. That's kind of what this race looked like, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Skiapod, which were a race of dwarf-like creatures with a single large foot. <laughs> yeah, it's... It's fine. Mildly horrifying. Yes. So Herodotus wrote about them, and Pliny put them in his encyclopedia, basically setting it as fact and not saying this isn't mythology or folklore. God. Yeah, that's why it's problematic. He also adds information on a race people observed, quote unquote, by um, Megathenus, and it's called um, the Astomi race. Um, which exists off of smells. So basically they don't have any mouse and are sustained by scent. And it's said that mm. they could die if they smelled something foul. <laughs> I mean, I would do the same thing, so... However, Pliny does discredit the existence of phoenixes. So phoenixes don't exist, but one-footed giant dwarf things and mouthless smelling people exist. <laughs> Just soak that in for a minute, okay? All right. (laughs) Books 12 through 19 are on botany. Um, And since Mm. this is one of the very few classical works that exist, Pliny is, quote, the chief source of modern knowledge on Roman gardens and agricultural techniques. This section is also extremely important to the modern reader because Pliny recorded... Latin synonyms or translations of Greek plant names, which made plant names mentioned in Greek writing identifiable for the first time. Books 20 through 32 focused on medicine and drugs. It also had sections on magic. Really? And then the last books, 33 through 37, include minerals, metals, minerals, metals, and gems. And these topics also include art, a discussion on artists and architects, their work, materials used, and technologies used. So it's kind of like he went around Rome and was like, oh, you see that column? It was made by so-and-so, and he used so-and-so technology, and these are the materials he used to make it. And it's like things that you would never know if this book was lost. Mm-hmm. We're getting there. So like I said, it's one of the few classical works to survive the modern day, and one of the reasons for this is because of its popularity. So after the fall of Rome and the decline of the ancient world and the loss of the Greek text that Pliny used, the natural history was actually a substitute for general education in the Middle Ages. So this is where all these people are getting their education from, if they were educated at all. Since it was so heavily used for education, this book was copied hundreds of times and used for education. 200 of these manuscripts exist today. So has this this book been re... um, These books, I should say. Have they been reprinted? In the modern era, I feel like it's like with like, you know, the Viking sagas and different things like that, where they take the translations and they actually put it out again. And it's like fucking penguin books or something. Yes and no. So it mm-hmm. the last edition that I've seen is from 1989 and it looks like Harvard mm-hmm. Press published them. Um, but we're going to get right into the printing right now. So it's a great, great timing question. Due to its popularity, it was one of the first classical manuscripts to be printed. So, again, we're back in Venice, and we're back during the Incunabula period, which ends in 1499. First printed edition of the Natural History was printed in 1469 in Venice by Johann and Wendelin of Speyer. And I read Mm -hmm. in an article that described what the first editions looked like, and they're all different. And I'm going to post um, a link on Facebook and Tumblr and Twitter to two very different first edition copies. And I'm also, I also mm-hmm. did make side-by-side comparisons of three pages just so you could see those. And those are the photos that I sent you, Sheila. My God, Amanda, you're doing so much fucking work. I had, I was so excited. This is such a cool fucking thing. Just to see them side-by-side, it's so jarring mm-hmm. to see how different yeah, they Yeah, no, be. it was- it's like looking at a template next to the, like... Yeah. It's like, you know those velvet posters? The one yeah. on the right 
It's before you color it in, and the one on the left is, like, all done in. Yeah. So what you're not seeing and what Sheila's describing, um, so the two that I have is one is from the Library of Congress and one is from the British Natural History Museum. The one at the Library of Congress is completely blank. So what the printers did, and this was a way to bridge the gap between um, manuscripts, like especially illuminated manuscripts, and printing. And it was to leave spaces blank for illustrators to come in and decorate. So what is missing really are these really elaborate capitals that we talked about in the first episode, which were printed. These ones were just left blank. This huge indent uh, was left blank for illustration to come in. So that's what you'll see in the photos. Mm -hmm. So like I said, the Library of Congress is uh, mostly clean and spaces are left for illustration have been blank but the British Museum has five editions. So I found an article that describes the copies found in the British Natural History Museum. It may have been in the British Museum back in 1929, but that's when it was written. Mm -hmm. um, this first edition at the British Museum are without pagination, catchwords, or signature marks. They consist of 355 folio leaves, of which the 19th and the last are blank, there are 50 lines to a full page. The first page of one copy has an illuminated border, and the head of each book is finely illustrated uh, initial. The paragraphs also have colored initials, but are less beautifully done. Um, these initials being mm -hmm. done by hand, no copies are alike in that respect. So you can definitely see, I've got the title page that he's talking about, and also some of those initials that are less beautifully done. I have those too. There's some terminology in that passage that I should define for you. So pagination is what we talked about last episode, and it just means simply page numbers, the addition of page numbers. Catch words are a word that is printed on the bottom of the page, and then it matches the first word on the next page. Um, and signature marks are printed codes, kind of, that describe how the printed leaves should be folded and gathered. And just to let you know, a folio is just a way that leaves are folded. If you take a sheet of paper and you fold it in half, congratulations, you have a folio. And I will include a chart on different ways that can be folded, because we're going to get into more of that terminology in just a second. So last episode, we also talked about how the popularity um, corresponds to the amount of editions printed. So Hypner Tamaki Polifili from last episode, printed in 1499, had one edition in Venice. And then it was printed multiple times in France in the 1540s. This is not the case with this book. This book mm -hmm. was first published in 1469 in Venice. A second edition was printed in Venice and Rome in 1470. Printed again in 1472 in Venice. And in 1499, 39 editions were published. 21 of those were printed in Venice. Remember, Venice is the hub of printing during the Incunabula period. That city produces more published work than entire countries. Just keep that in mind. Um, and it's important to state that in 1492, the natural history was attacked by a guy named Niccolo Leoncenzo, who criticized it for not distinguishing between fact and fiction. In the 16th century, so we're talking 1500s, 89 editions were printed. And this is the height of the popularity. So Venice and France tied with the most amount of editions printed with 27 from each. Mm -hmm. 63 of these editions were folios, 13 of them were quartos, 5 of them were octovos, and 3 of them were duodecimos. And these are all book folding terms. So it's just how many times the leaves are folded. Again, there'll be a chart posted. 17th century, 43 editions were published in Geneva and Paris tied for the most editions printed with 7 each. Um, mm -hmm. Also in this century, so we're talking 1600s, so in 1601, the natural history was translated into English for the first time, but not fully. Near the end of the 1600s, the scientific community dismissed the work completely, due to the same reasons as Niccolo Leoncenzo in 1492, just because he didn't distinguish between fact and opinion, and he was stating folklore and mythology is fact. In the 18th century, only 19 editions were published. And the only information I have from the 19th century is that the complete English translation um, was finished in 1855. Um, and since the article that I got the information from was published in 1929, I don't have any more stats 
on the printing of the Natural History. Um, but you can buy it on Amazon. Um, I believe it is that 1989 edition. Um, I'm not sure if anything was printed in the 2000s. Nice. But the book gives us a glimpse into classical Roman culture and gives us a view of the materials mm -hmm. that were once available and just really is a recap of all this information that's now lost. And that is my segment. Links and photos will be available. And it's really cool, so check it out. That shit is good. <laughs> that was that was fun. That was that, a good so. That's a good time. I liked that one. That's a good research topic. I'm, so I loved it. We so. need to figure out no. what the fuck the next well, episode is. I would like to propose <clears throat> since one, two, uh Yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean the next one's close enough to Valentine's Day. Oh, yeah. We could do romance. Yeah, let's do romance. Let's do love. Yeah. Love. So for next episode, for any OG listeners, I'm not redoing my topic, but I will because <laughs> it was a bad topic. I'm going to maybe touch on it briefly, and it's just the origins of Valentine's Day. Um, nothing mm -hmm. crazy going on there, but I for sure will talk about um, those origins, but I'll come up with some other gross thing to talk about because it's Valentine's Day. Yay. Yay, Valentine's Day! Oh my god, it's my Ooh. first Valentine's Day as a married woman. Oh my god. For those who don't know, Amanda got married in October and she's living. I'm living life. She's living. Living my fullest. <laughs> this will be my first Valentine's where I'm with uh, a partner I'm happy with. So that's nice. Look at us go living our best lives. Hey! hey. All right. Well, we will see y'all in two weeks. Love you. Don't die. And don't get a paper cut. Yeah, that's real random, but totally. Please don't get a paper cut. Also, <laughs> great news that I just got today. Today being mm -hmm. January 22nd, 2019. I got an email from Apple saying, hey, your podcast has been accepted. So, oh yeah, congratulations if you're listening to this what? on Apple Podcasts because it's the first episode to basically <laughs> be recorded with that approval. So, yay us and yay Apple Podcasts. Also, you can Woo! find us on Spotify. And yay Amanda for doing all of this for oh, us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. It's so fun. Right. I love this. <laughs> All right. Well, I love you. I love you. I will see you downstairs in just wow. a minute. All right. Well, we're going to peace out, y'all. Have a good time. Thanks for listening. Good night. Good night. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you want more Literally Dead, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Literally Dead. You can find us on Tumblr under the same name. If you have any topics you would like us to discuss or ideas for future episodes, or you just want to say hi, email us at literallydeadpodcast at gmail.com.